So a couple quick uh, commercials. My, my dean asked me to do this just so I could get away from work and do this. So I've, I created the chaplaincy program at Denver Seminary while I was still on active duty in 98. And I told my dean then that I like to create things, I hate to run them. So when the military moves me, I'm gone. Well, that was 24 years ago and I'm still there. So of the chaplaincy programs that many seminaries are doing now, and by the way, there's a lot. Uh, three years ago, there were only 70 seminaries with something to do with chaplaincy. And now there's over 120. So you can see how chaplaincy is becoming much more what people are looking for. But ours is still the, the oldest and the most in-depth. So you can get an MDiv with a chaplaincy concentration or you can get a chaplaincy certificate, which is not a certification, but it's a certificate in education. Both of those require that you do a unit of CPE that I can make sure you get to do distance or there. This may or may not work for some of you, but it may work for some of the people that come to you. So I just wanted you to know about that. Do you have a question or no? Okay. The other thing, and this is for um, our military folks here, or those of you working with military, if you are not a member of the Military Chaplains Association, I really encourage you to join it. It was, um, Congress approved that organization in the 1920s. And it's the only chartered chaplaincy organization that has the right to speak at on the Capitol at Hill on behalf of chaplains. That organization used to be a bunch of us old retirees telling us war stories, and in some ways it still is. Mm -hmm. But let me tell you how important it is to rub shoulders with those old retirees who can say, have you ever thought about doing this? Can I help you with this? Oh, you need a, an accommodation for somebody we want to get in the military? Tell me about them. I'll go make a call. One day I was sitting next to one of the retired um, Navy admirals, and I had a male nurse recruiter who wanted to become a chaplain. And they told him that he was medically disqualified and he's still on active duty. What is wrong with this picture? So I'm just making noise. Next thing I know, the admiral gets up, he comes back and he says, you can recommission him next week. We can do that for people. We give chaplaincy scholarships to candidates. We also have something that you might be interested in in your local churches. And that's that we have military friendly congregations talking to Dave on the way in, a lot of civilians don't get how to work with military. The military don't get how to translate our language into civilian talk. But they want to be supportive, they just don't know how. So that's another thing that the organization does. Um, so those are, those are two pitches I wanna give to you. And the third and last pitch would be on board certification. For most of you in healthcare, you need to be board certified or you can't keep your job. And there are many ways to get board certification through the Association of Professional Chaplains, through the VA, a couple other places. From APC, which is the board that I've served on as well, one of the things that's new is we now have um, advanced board certifications. Board certification is everything that you already are to be endorsed, plus four units of CPE, plus another 2,000 hours after you've done your CPE units, then you can apply for board certification. And it's about competencies. And we'll even give you a mentor to help you pass the puppy. But beyond that, we now have two specializations that some of you might be interested in. One is a specialization in advanced board certification in hospice and palliative care. The other one is a specialization in military chaplaincy. It's especially for those moving into field grade or supervising a lot of people, even if they're volunteers. Because what most of us found out, and that's what my doctoral dissertation was on, we lose people going from junior officer to senior officer. We lose them from going point of service work into now I'm doing my ministry through somebody else. And when we did the research, some of you in the Navy may know Lyman Smith. When we did the research for this for two years, going to um, senior officers, generals, admirals, those who are retired, I can't begin to tell you how many looked at me and said, so is this what my chaplain's supposed to be doing? Uh, yes, sir, it is. And he said, great, now I know how to write his fitness report. I didn't know what words to use. 
that's a really good thing for you to do and to be a discriminator when you come up for a promotion to have the board certification and have that. And on top of it, you're ready to go into the VA when you retire if you want, or you're ready to use it in the congregations. So that's just some of Jan's career counseling, okay? Good, all right. Now we're gonna move into military injury. You're gonna find a lot of words out there. Military distressed, military injury, moral injury. I said military meant more. And so like a lot of things that happened in crisis and disaster, it kind of started with the military first. And this isn't new, this has been around forever. General MacArthur said, a soldier above all people prays for peace for he, she, must suffer and bear the deepest wounds and scars of war. Civilians don't get that about us, about how much it costs us to represent them and to care. The lasting impact of moral injurious experience in war still remains chiefly unaddressed. How many of us as chaplains care for somebody else out there and then go, so who cares for us? you're here you're here if you don't have another circle of chaplains to be your confidence and yours to consult with using my great grandma's words you're dumber than dirt do it we need it in my opinion that's what the church is today i'm stronger lean on me tomorrow i'm going to be leaning on you but this isn't new what we do with it is, and how it affects everybody and not just the military, is new. Some of the definitions. Moral injury or wound is the injury or wound to the soul experienced as a result of a traumatic event. That event doesn't have to be yours. It could be somebody else's that you know about where it just gets stuck in your ear and you keep thinking about it, thinking about it and visualizing. A disruption of the individual's confidence and expectations about their own moral behavior or somebody else's capacity to behave in a just and ethical manner. So it could be my issue or it could be people I work with. Okay. And now the last definition is mine. An injury or wound to the soul that results when two deeply held ethical beliefs come in conflict with each other and must result in choosing one over the other. I've got to make a decision and I don't like either one of these and I had to choose something. We saw that with COVID and the vaccinations. If some of you remember the old, old movie uh, with Meryl Streep, Sophie's Choice, which child do you want me to kill in the middle of the Holocaust? Because if you don't choose, I'm going to kill them both. What do I do with that? What do I do with something that says, I don't believe in stealing, but if I don't get some food, my baby's going to die. What do we do with that? Those are moral injuries. Some aspects about this. Participation in events that challenge your own core beliefs or have no clear moral choices, including violating your moral codes of training, especially in a closed system. So in the first Iraqi war, when I was in Turkey, one of the things, of course, is our rules of engagement that we agree upon. One of those rules of engagement is we don't go after people in the hospital. We don't shoot down somebody who's gonna be a POW. We don't do this to the Red Cross. Saddam took and put snipers in hospitals. Now, what are my military kids supposed to do with that? He also took and chained women and children in the perimeter of where he was. What are you supposed to do with that? What are you supposed to do during the Afghanistan and uh, Iraqi wars when this person that you just helped in an orphanage is now the one with a suicide vest on? And as a pregnant woman, what do I do with that? I've got seconds to make a decision and then I have to live with that decision. 
those are military examples. We're gonna look at a lot more as we keep going. Use of personal agency that violates your own core moral beliefs. The shoulds and the oughts. I should not act like this, but. Agony of, in, of inner judgment about yourself. Surely there was something else I could have done. What else could I have tried? How long did I have to try this? And the feelings that come with it are oftentimes grief, anger, despair, guilt, shame, remorse, betrayal, contrition, depression, isolation, and ultimately for some of our people, a loss of a will to live. The only way I know out of this is to kill me. What's the difference between guilt and shame? Anybody, short answers? Guilt is um, legal and uh -huh. shame is emotional. Yeah, okay, another way to say it? Guilt is something I can apologize for. Shame is there's something wrong with me. Yeah, okay, that works. Guilt says something happened and I feel this way. Shame says something happened and I am this way. Uh -huh. Huh? One's external, one's internal. I was just going to add to that, like in a more uh, honor shame culture, guilt is a personal conviction that I've done something wrong. Shame is the community views me as I am wrong. So a lot of that is guilt is something outside of me. I did or didn't do something. Shame is how I feel about me. Could I feel guilt and not be guilty? Yeah. How many of you have sat somewhere in a, in a meeting sometimes and they, instead of saying, you know, hey, Paul, I need you to do this. We say, so many of you need to be able to get your paperwork in on time. And we're going, is it I, Lord? Is it I? Is it I? Okay. Must have been me. I can feel guilty when I have no reason to feel guilty. But the shame is what we carry inside. And that's a moral wound that people can't see. It's not the same thing as I have shrapnel and you can see it. Collapse of moral identity, how I see me and the meaning system I have in the world that supports it are aspects of moral injury. I believe, and we're going to talk about it in here, that moral injury and wounds can happen to anyone at any time, not just military. It's just our job in the military sense of to have more than a lot of other people. So there's lots of pictures in here. Can somebody from healthcare tell me how some of your providers, not you, could have a moral injury? What causes a moral injury for your docs, your nurses, your staff? No. Triage. Triage. Yeah, say more about that. That's really important. Well, you, I mean, you decide who gets the care and who doesn't get the care. You decide who's, you know, can be treated and who's expectant. Uh -huh. And what happens when we have a mass casualty? It flips, doesn't it? Okay. So in general, you go into the emergency room and it says those in danger of dying are going to be seen first. In a mass casualty, what does it say instead? It doesn't say it, but that's what's going on. I'm going to work with the ones who live. I'm going to look at work for the ones who live. And our providers don't get that a lot of times. They haven't made that switch. In the military, my behavioral health people, my uh, licensed therapist, don't get that they're there to protect the institution, not necessarily the individual. If, if somebody comes in and it's a situational issue, and I can turn that situation around and help them through that, they get to stay in the military. But do you really want to have somebody that's got um, multiple personality working with nukes and guns? I don't think so but that's not what they were trained for. So that's a moral injury. I was trained to do this, and this is what's required. What are some of the moral injuries that can happen if you're working in a prison system? The difficulty between um, is this for rehabilitation or punishment? Yeah. Constantly you're you're yeah. dealing with this question of because our justice system doesn't know what it wants. Right. And so it does both and both equally pretty poorly. And so. who's being protected? And what's the reason behind that? Yeah. Okay. What about what we find out now that we can do DNA, that we've incarcerated a lot of people that didn't do what we incarcerated them for? 
how do they ever get part of their life back? What do I do as the chaplain caring for somebody like that? Um, those are some of the some of the issues. What if what if you're working with attorneys? What about the prosecutor and the defense? What are moral injuries for them? Defending somebody who's guilty, getting them off, and they do it again. Everybody deserves a defense. I believe everybody deserves pastoral care. I think that's true. What do you do? How do you do it? What about the prosecutor who prosecutes somebody and then finds out that was innocent? That's a moral injury. <laughs> Most of us make the best decisions we know how, given the data we have at hand. And on a Monday morning quarterbacking, you may find something different. What about our firemen down here at the bottom? That's a picture from uh, the Oklahoma bombing. What's the moral injury for that poor fireman? He couldn't save everyone. You make me a hero? I saved 14 kids, this one died. Don't make me a hero. I couldn't do that one. <laughs> Anybody else? Moral injuries in the world you live in? Yes, sir. Uh, you were talking before like about doctors and stuff like that. Sometimes, I mean, you can be, you know, working with certain patients, patients that are fine, fine. Then there's one that connects with something deeply personal yeah. for them. Yeah. And, and that, that connection is, yeah. Yeah. And that happens to all of us, doesn't it? Not just the docs. But that happens with, this could have been my kid. This reminds me of my grandma. We have cases where there's anomalies, genetic anomalies. And because I work with the palliative care team, they know of families who have healthy children who have gone on to enjoy love and happiness in their family, and yet they're with a family who is choosing for termination. Right. And they know families that have yeah. gone to full term, and, and there's no way of knowing. And so they're trying to be equally providing in care with the family having either choice and trying to be okay with it. And for the family even, either way, there's a moral injury. Do I, do I terminate and this kid could have been okay? Do I, do I keep this kid who's gonna have a hard time and I'm gonna die before them and who's gonna take care of them? Yeah, it's a moral injury. Um, I've noticed this phenomenon where people serving in a context where they, they find themselves enjoying that context, but culture doesn't give that approval. Right. So later when they're no longer in that context, they no longer feel like they fit. Right. And so the only place they ever felt at home or that they fit is something that the culture tells them is like bad. That's right. There's not many calls for a job that says I was a sniper coming out of the military. Or my fighter pilots. I can tell who's been a fighter pilot if I'm flying with them because they bounce their planes. <laughs> okay. I know you didn't fly heavies. Yeah. How, how do I fit my identity? A lot of this is about our identity, isn't it? And that's part of where we help people making their meaning with their identity. That's my hand over here too somewhere. Yeah. Having to decide whether or not somebody is suicidal needs to be um, 302 committed against their will and weighing what they're telling you versus what you're seeing, what the family is saying, and then whether or not to File that 302 petition. Yeah. Yeah. How do we how do we give the person their own agency, especially if it doesn't match with my belief system? Um, can we buy people another 24 hours to see if something changes? At least in my experience, with a lot of suicidal people that I worked with, the best thing we have on on our intervention to help somebody is buy them time because tomorrow morning something may change. Yes, sir. Connected with that, um, in Oregon, death with dignity. Uh -huh. you know, that, that is a, a struggle. Sure. And it's a struggle for the, for the docs too, yeah. that have to sign off on it. Absolutely. And yet I, I remember when my mom was dying of cancer and it spread from her lungs to her brain and her bones. I couldn't, I couldn't hear my mom moan like a, like a baby. And it just tore me up inside. And so many, maybe in hospice, so many people are saying, I just want to go home. And we're saying, well, you are home. No, no, I want to go home. I'm done. Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come for me now. 
Yeah, I was thinking uh, my wife and my sister are both teachers. And so for them trying to operate in a system where they have certain certain parameters that they can't uh -huh. interact with kids or uh -huh. um, I even think of moral injuries in terms of what, how you grow up and how a moral injury could be from your parents from some type of sure. abuse, something like that. And, yeah. Um, just seeing just seeing my wife navigate having to um, reprimand a student knowing that the student's acting out because of their moral injury. So now she's in a moral dilemma about how to handle their moral injury Good point. in the classroom. And for a lot of those kids, they don't know any other way. Yeah. You know, this is the way I get attention and love. This must be the only way in the world. Sure. All of those things will be moral injury to the person and to we who are caring for the person. So far, okay? What I really wanted to make sure already, it's not just about military. But the military have more opportunities to get it because of what we get put into. Results of traumatic events such as, whoops, results of traumatic events such as a death of a child, a death of any death, but especially if a child is gonna spin everybody out. Children aren't supposed to die. We're supposed to take care of kids. Another death that's going to spin us out secondary to that is what we call line of duty death. It could have been me. This is, this is somebody in the military who died. It could have been me or it should have been me. I've got a moral injury now because I was sick and couldn't go in and all of my buds got blown up. It should have been me. Any combat or war is going to give us moral choices that looking back, we go, I don't know what I could have done differently. Terrorism, mass shootings, all of these horrid mass shootings with kids. Why in heaven's name are we shooting up kids? Rape, natural disasters, sex trafficking, death of a colleague, that's a line of duty death. A serious health diagnosis, death, or fear that you're going to get one. Could be a moral injury. False public accusations. Just because you're charged with a crime doesn't mean you did the crime. Handling human remains. We talked about that at Dover in particular. There's a lot of moral injury that most of us could experience, but so can our clients. And that's where we have to think about it as chaplains. Unjust, unethical, immoral behavior of others it's gonna give us a moral injury. Shot and killed an unarmed person. This was a squirt gun, I thought it was really a gun. A fellow athlete, friendly fire. A patient with a wrong diagnosis or medication. You made me choose who would die. Lied about the status of the financial books. The number of patients that was seen so I could keep my job. Statistics, tests, plagiarism. You lied about me. You stole food, money, job, credit for my work. You covered up a botched surgery, allowed perjury, broke confidentiality, let friendly fire happen. You embezzled. And a lot of these come down to a betrayal. I feel betrayed because you who I trusted have gone against my moral code. You betrayed me, others, the country, your faith, your oath, your institution, malpractice suits, abused by a person of trust, conflicting desires in a dying situation. I'll never forget when I had that, I don't know if I told you that in here this morning or not, forgive me. But I had a Hispanic priest who was stalking me, not sexually stalking me, but stalking me. I couldn't even get anybody to believe me, including my husband, the cop, until this guy showed up at my house. Until when they um, closed that base, they found out that he'd put listening devices in my office. I felt betrayed by everybody who didn't trust me. Rape victims feel betrayed that they're not trusted. A lot of the people we listed here will feel betrayed. So this is how I feel betrayed by others. I also betray myself the same way. 
can't believe that I behave like this. Shot, killed somebody, lied, stole, covered up, betrayed somebody else. What happened to my moral compass that I did this? That's our shame issue again. Now, what I want to say that, that I've observed that isn't in most of the literature is when two moral beliefs are in conflict, and I want to hold them both, and I can only hold them one. That's a moral injury. Kill or be killed. What do I do about that pregnant woman with an IED? I'm not supposed to kill women. I'm not supposed to kill pregnant women. And yet this is a suicide bomber. And if I don't do that, not just I, but my team is going to be killed. I think for me, sometimes I hope this is true. I don't know if it will be true. I think I could take something if it happens to me and say, go for it. I'm not sure I can let it happen to somebody else. <coughs> Everyone deserves and their limited resources. Man, COVID taught us that with the pandemic. There's limited resources, there's limited beds. What are we gonna do with that? And what about everybody else who didn't get the surgery they needed and are now dying because of the COVID issue? What do we do when there's limited resources? What do we do when there's only one of me on a ship? I'm it. Tag, you're it. Yeah, you work 24-7. What a surprise. Medical care, triage, as you spoke about. But the patient caused it. You spoke about it this morning. This is a bad person. Transplants. Three people deserve to live. We have one heart we can give. Immigration versus safety and resources. <coughs> Housing, food, legal defense, protection. What do we do when we've got the limited resources and we morally believe everybody has a right to? Survival versus values. If I had kids and it was steal or let them die, I'd steal. If it was just me, I hope I'd have enough guts to say no. Yeah. I just thought of one, Jane, that sure. might appreciate some advice on as a young pastor, but our church has a, a phenomenon in older congregations is that they become widows or widowers and lose their spouse. And, uh, and um, one congregant, his uh, wife has Alzheimer's and uh, it's pretty advanced, so she doesn't remember anything, it's non-communicate. And I don't know, I think he's expressed to me, you know, Blaze, I feel like I've lost my spouse, only she's not gone and, and there's no funeral. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Basically, I'm watching my spouse die. Yeah. And what do I do? Do I, do I put the spouse in a home? That's not my value system. Is this a better place for my spouse to keep them safe? You know, how do I handle these pieces? You know, how, how do I, or he's told me, how do I go see her when it's so hard personally and, and, she, and know, she doesn't even know me uh-huh there's some really here i go with my cinema therapy again there's some really good movies out like that the notebook is another one one of my one of my graduate students was a two-star general's wife and he was a literal rocket scientist who got alzheimer's and watching him die just tore us all up who knew him and and she would say to me something like every once in a while i could see that he was in there once in a while, something he remembered me, but not his kids. And one of the things he would do in the middle of the night is he'd get up out of bed and he'd walk around the facility. And even the staff said, what the heck is he doing? He's doing a perimeter check. He was keeping people safe. That's where his memory was. Those are tough. Really, really tough to watch somebody disappear piece by piece by piece. There's a name for that called ambiguous loss. Ambiguous loss. Ambiguous loss. Yeah. And uh, that is a phenomenon where the person does is not dead. My mother had Alzheimer's. My dad had to take care of her. We all had to watch. Uh, but uh, like with a child uh, loses capacity or a closed head injury, you know, traumatic brain injury, anything like that, where the person is still with us, 
but they're not the same person. So and it also goes into anticipatory grief. You're anticipating the grief of because you're grieving every day. And then when the person finally dies and everybody comes in and says, sorry for your loss, you're going into moral injury. I'm glad it's over. I'm glad it's over. Not just for their sake, but for mine. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's just, um, I'm, one of my jobs outside of the chaplaincy is as a care pastor. One of the phenomena that I've dealt with multiple times, I almost anticipate it now, is if somebody's been in a situation where they've been caring for this person long term, there's um, when the person passes, there's a sense of relief, uh -huh. and they feel extremely guilty. Right. Yep. Like, I don't want them to go, but I'm yep. kind of glad that I don't have this burden anymore. And so I always have to walk them through that just to make sure they don't feel like they're doing something morally wrong by feeling relief. And their whole identity is different. I was a caregiver. Now who am I? Yeah. I put me on hold for this. Now who am I? I There's an identity shift. Yes, sir. Yeah. I was thinking about the the two beliefs colliding is in our like our culture is like pain to be avoided at all costs. And so the the feeling of like um the feeling of colliding and like how do I share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ, right? Mm -hmm. And feeling shameful about that I want to run from pain. Yeah. Right? That's a lot of yeah. caring for them. Yeah. And how do I integrate my faith into that of yeah. wanting to be relieved, but at the same time calling to being called to suffer at the same time. And that's what happens sometimes when we want to fix somebody else's problems. Not just because they hurt, but because I hurt. And I want to fix it for me, not necessarily for them. Yeah. You know, one of the things I keep telling myself during some seasons, now with my husband having cancer, there's no shortcuts to the resurrection. You still have to go through the cross and the tomb. And I want to go from, <laughs> I know you got this promise, get me there. Oh, there's no shortcuts. What happens when our religious beliefs that we hold to so terribly true and reality don't seem like they mix? How could a God God allow? Is usually where that comes in. Legal requirements versus religious beliefs is a moral injury. I don't believe in autopsies, but I've got to do this. The law says so. That's a moral injury. Quality of life versus efficiency of life. That's especially in healthcare where we get people fighting over a DOA. Uh, do not resuscitate. DOR, excuse me. DNR. I'll get there. It's been a long time since I've done healthcare. What do we what do we do when that happens? I can't be the one that decides that dad's gonna die. After I sat with my mom dying and then my dad was dying in a hospital, I remember going out on the steps and just crying. And my girlfriend was a charge nurse in another part of the hospital and saying, I can't be the one to make this decision for my dad. I just can't. I can't go through it again. And I walked back in and he had died while I was gone. It's like, I can't do this. I can't do it again. I just can't be the one that decides this, even though dad had decided so two beliefs are colliding. What do we do with those? First of all, we tell people, listen up, because you're going to hear it again. Only moral people can have a moral injury. Okay? Good news is, if you weren't moral, it wouldn't hurt. If you didn't love, you wouldn't miss. If you didn't care about other people, it wouldn't hurt. That's the first place to start when we're counseling our people. I think it's a very important place to start. PTSD and moral injury are not the same thing, but they do connect a lot of times. PTSD is a fear victim reaction to extreme conditions that damage the amygdala and the hippocampus, the limbic brain. I'm afraid this will happen again. A moral injury requires a healthy cortex where empathy and moral thinking occur. Can you hear that difference? Okay. PTSD disrupts the relationship to the world when logical thinking becomes unreliable. 
moral injury disrupts the relationship with myself when my inner moral code is doubted. Did I make the right decision? Did I have the right to make a decision? Could I have made another decision? What's wrong with me that I? Okay, back to us as caregivers. I think there are three spiritual maladies that we need to look at. Soul wounds, a violated conscience, and deep grief. A soul wound is in spiritual language. Not everybody who comes to us is going to be using spiritual language. But if you're doing your assessment, you're going to hear that it's moral injury. But oftentimes they'll be using spiritual language to describe the cost of this moral injury to the event to themselves. I died spiritually. They stole my soul. There is no God. I used to believe there was one. I saw evil firsthand, upfront and personal. I descended into hell. That's describing a moral injury. And spiritual people would use that phraseology with us. A violated conscience is confusion of one's ethics and morality, especially if one behaved immorally. Guilt and shame fester and can erupt years later. One of my students, I put that person in a um, elder care setting, just as a trainee. And this guy who'd been in World War II came looking for the head chaplain and she said, chaplain's not here, but can I help you with anything? And he said, I've carried this around forever. Even my wife doesn't know this. But what I did in World War II is we were responsible to go to one of those islands in the Pacific, in Japan, and tell people the war was over. Sounds cool. I like to tell everybody we're done. Even with a translator, we're trying to tell them it's done. The women who were left on that island took their children and threw them over the cliff and then dived in after them. Because what they had been told is don't let yourself be captured by them. This is what will happen to you. He said, I was trying to save everybody. And the words caused them to kill themselves. I've carried that around for all these years. What a moral injury. What a moral injury. Suicide may seem like the only way out. Somehow I'm going to make um, the scales of justice match. If I kill myself for what I did, then the scales of justice are okay. The number one predictor in general of somebody who's going to commit suicide, not just talk about it, is guilt and shame. And who better than us to talk to somebody about a moral injury? Not even our believing licensed therapist can talk to anybody about this, but that's our role. That's our wheelhouse. Deep grief, specific feelings, thoughts, intentions, actions, sensations, resulting from multiple losses. How long, oh Lord? How many of you have back-to-back -back heavy cases and you just can't breathe? Yeah. My husband used to say, go touch planes. Get out of your office and go touch planes. Go touch people in planes. Get out of here for a while. Mild losses happen to everybody. Missed anniversaries, births, home crisis, etc. Severe losses like death, losing a limb, mental capacity, hope, faith, relationships. Delayed grieving until later when I can let myself feel and later never comes. Tangled web of trauma, depression, and grief. When things slow down, I'll get the help I need, says the chaplain. Ever slow down? Yeah. Who pastors the pastors? We do. He does. In combat, spiritual maladies. Some causes of trauma have spiritual roots. Living with the threat of being killed. 
That's our police department. That's our fire department. That's our first providers. That's our military. Killing others, not killing others. I could have done it and look what happened. Split minute decisions. All are affected by one's beliefs and values on self-preservation and an obligation to defend and protect others. That's where I hope that I can say, bring it on if it's me, but don't you dare hurt somebody behind me. While the horrors of war, being a first provider, may not be the rule, they aren't uncommon, and we don't talk about it a lot. When we recruit, where's my recruiter? She's still here? I lose her. She's doing her thing? When we recruit somebody, we tell them about all the perks. And they're really good perks. It's kind of nice that I have a pension. Kind of nice that I'm a disabled vet and I get care. But what about the cost to your soul? Do we ever talk to them about that will happen? Can you count the cost before you build? Are you ready for this? If you aren't ready for this, how can we help you be ready for this? Do we have sermons on it? Some engage spiritually intact and will grow stronger. Have you heard of PTSG, post-traumatic growth? It can happen. You can come out on the other side much stronger and much healthier than when you went through it. Some emerge broken and in despair with a loss of hope and meaning. And they, then they succumb to this nihilism. Or as a chaplain friend says, my give a shit just broke. There's nothing left for me to give. I'm empty. Mark's going to talk about it. I'm going to talk it later about self-care. How do we fill that up so it's not broken and empty? War is essentially a spiritual undertaking that's virtually always justified by transcendent values. Why did we do this? Well, because this is what we wanted. This is what we believe. This is to stop it on our shore. So it happens on somebody else's shore. What's that do to us? When our troops go to war, they're almost always inevitably disillusioned, especially those who join for transcendent values. But I thought I'd be doing this. And this is what I see. This is what I've become. In combat, troops are constantly put into morally ambiguous situations. Read police department in that one too. Morality is the foundation for all other values. And combat, split second decision-making, terrorism, running into a fire instead of away for a fire, often challenges the moral values they've been taught and believe and hold to be true. Now what do I do with that? Glad you asked. Here are some things to do. <laughs> Here are some things to help people. First of all, a dialogue with a benevolent spiritual moral authority. Read you. <laughs> That's our wheelhouse. If we aren't experts in grief and loss, we've screwed up somewhere. Practice deep, non-judgmental listening to these experiences that have precipitated this injury. <laughs> Offer understanding of the struggle, not necessarily their decision in it. Affirm core moral beliefs that emerge. Again, only moral people can have a moral injury. And you can't go back and undo yesterday. What are you going to do going forward? Yeah, Brad. Can you say more about only moral people can have moral injury? Yeah. If I don't have, a, if, if I don't feel morally, I'm a sociopath, I'm a psychopath. There's nothing in me that's gonna care. I don't have anything I'm standing on, so there's nothing to stand on. If you weren't moral, it wouldn't hurt you. If you didn't love somebody, this wouldn't hurt you. If you didn't believe in something bigger than you, it wouldn't hurt you. Is that helpful? Yeah, I'm just thinking of someone who might claim to be a person of no faith and may, may declare in other spaces 
I don't have a framework of morality as, as an excuse, right? Like we've talked about some of these people that use religious exemption for to excuse behavior, excuse something else. But I, guess, I, guess, I think I would contend myself that you can still have moral injury without a moral framework. I'm not. Because maybe you've denied something. Let me try this. I think you can have a moral injury without a moral framework, but it doesn't have to be a religiously moral framework. I still have a belief system in something that hasn't worked. So it could be that closed phase even sure. that hasn't worked. So there's still something inside of why would they bother coming to us? other than the fact that most of us are free <laughs> you know why why come to a spiritual caregiver when i don't believe in spirituality something inside feels broken say more about how you're asking yeah go ahead um tell me more about why you're asking that what are you thinking of yeah a narcissist will, will still have a moral belief system but yes it's in me how does this affect me not how does it affect somebody else i made this choice and look what happened to me is where a narcissist is going to land does that make sense okay over here and then over here Go. i just want to offer that uh, at least in my practice i find a lot of my clients if you will they can't articulate their moral framework but they live by it yeah you know, um, and one of the things that helps me ground them in the reality they do have a moral framework is I ask them, okay, well, what would happen if I stole your wallet? Would you be upset? Well, generally, they're like, yeah, I would be upset. About it. So you do have some kind of moral reference point. Um, maybe we just haven't like thought through this fully. You can't articulate it. Yeah, I think it gets back to biblical literacy sometimes too. Is is we have a moral illiteracy sometimes we not not been developed this way anymore like we don't have those frameworks that were traditionally building us this way it could also be cultural too this culture says it's okay to do this this culture says it isn't so my entire neighborhood where i was raised is italian mafia i didn't know that <laughs> i didn't know that because i was just the little girl on the block that they took care of before um vatican ii when Catholics who came to a Protestant service would be excommunicated, they wanted to come to my baptism. Well, the priest was going to excommunicate them, and the Godfather said, no, you're not. So they came to my baptism. When I got ordained, they threw the reception, and it said, our Janney is now our priest. But the old mafia would say, you can lie, cheat, and steal, but you don't do this to your family. That's a cultural morality. And... I was included as family. Now that doesn't match my morality, but it matched theirs. Is that making sense to you? When I was in when I was in Turkey, it was okay to hit on a woman, especially a, an American woman and a blonde. But as soon as she said no, the answer was we stop. Or the whole entire city is gonna beat them up. Okay, that's a morality. It may not be mine, but it's their morality. When they feel broken and come to us, it's because it violated theirs. Yeah. confusion plays into this, like, because there's so much of that now. So this and that, what's moral, what's not moral. It's very situational now. Yes. Where for most of us that grew up, it wasn't situational. Biblical literacy, you know, what in our culture is training, let's say, just Americans sure. to believe right and wrong. Yeah. I don't know, it just pops in my head. Marvel movies and yeah. things like that is yeah. where our culturally held values are being taught and yeah. reinforced. And you know, and if you are dealing with somebody who I don't know, uh, has no problem shooting people and they might end up in the military, then that's a real problem. And they probably should be in the military. So, so something, um, again, I'm going back to my cinema therapy class. Have any of you watched the, the movie or the DVD, um, Eye in the Sky? It's about drone pilots. There's a moral injury with drone pilots that most pilots in most of our branches don't have. Because from 30 plus thousand feet, I'm dropping something and I'm this is a target. You know, Top Gun Maverick 101. 
but a drone pilot is watching this family and now says, yep, that's a target. Take it out. And here comes his daughter walking into the house. And he goes home to his kids that night. That's a moral injury. Okay. Yes, sir. I just wanted to address uh, Brad's. Sure. Go. It's an important affirmation that you, if you're not moral, you cannot get moral injury. Because the point is that you're hurting not because you're broken, but you're hurting because mm -hmm. you're healthy. And yep. That's when people yep. come in my office and they're struggling. Yep. They think they're hurting because they're broken. Yeah. Uh, not because this is a bad yeah, Well, when somebody comes in for counseling with me, and I'm not a licensed therapist, I'm just a practitioner of a thousand years. But it's like, if you weren't here, you didn't hurt. Good for you that you know you hurt. Let's start there. Yeah. You know, if, if you didn't love or want to be loved, this wouldn't hurt you. If you didn't care about somebody, it wouldn't hurt you. But let's let's find the good in this so we can start from there. Great. Are you going to get back to um, this deep grief, the idea of a person who comes in and says, my, my give a shit's broken, that I, I no longer feel moral injury? I think so. I think we're going to go, go look at this repair process. If not, catch me again. So the next thing, after we start with that, the dialogue with us, non-judgmental support for the pain is what is possible, if anything, to repair that pain and to be forgiven for the pain you caused. Discuss how it might occur in the current context. Um, when you get somebody who's as a woman chaplain, I got a lot of people who were raped or the husband of a wife who was raped um, or abused, sexually abused. I don't know how many people, at least when I was on active duty, how many girls went into the military to get away from a sexual encounter and found out they were in a male world, okay? How do we do that? Do we say, you must forgive? Well, there's a lot of research on yeah, there's a forgiveness, but the forgiveness isn't automatic and it doesn't mean the other person has to say they're wrong. I'm forgiving them because of what it does to me. I'm letting that go. They no longer have control over me. Go back and talk to your captor, they say to POWs. That could work. It doesn't always work. Go back and talk to your dad and your uncles who abused you. That may not be safe, but there are a lot of ways we can help somebody repair and forgive. They can write it and never mail it. They can tape it and never send it. They can now be the one that works for justice for people that didn't get justice themselves. There are a lot of ways that that can happen. understand and live into lament, um, which is lament, lament crying out in the midst of their pain. Um, the pain is real. It's there. I may not be able to do anything about it, but I'm going to cry out to God and I'll be honest. But then that is like the step that helps them move towards forgiveness. It's almost taking that toxicity out of me. Yeah. And At it's least. saying, I'm not here alone in this. <laughs> I think we Protestants have, have bailed out on lament more than we probably should have. Offer support for self-forgiveness or forgiveness from others to our clients. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. There's a piece of that confession and absolution that we Protestants have blown off a lot. Moral self-forgiveness and repair of harm a process of making amends and even forgiving themselves. You are a 12-year-old child. You're no longer a 12-year-old child. You're looking at this with the eyes of adults now. What would be different if when you were 12, you had the ability to say no to your abuser? You didn't have the option as a kid. Now you have some options you didn't have before. So I've seen there will be an initial moral injury and then 
all these other issues start coming out of it. Correct. So, yep. okay, there was sexual assault and now suicide, you developed an eating disorder, you're not showing up for work, you're getting in trouble. So there's all these other issues. So is it a similar cascading effect when you go after the kind of, hey, we're going to go through the moral injury part and forget all the rest of that for right now? Or how do you how do you approach and kind yeah, of read through let me, let me do some of this. In a, in a very short term, terse way. A lot of times what we do is like take the onion and we're peeling the back a piece at a time until we finally get to the, here's the core of what hurt. Um, there's a book I use in my brief therapy class called Traumatic Injury Repair, T-I-R. And it talks about anybody can do this with a client. There's strict parameters for how you do it and what you need to watch out for because anytime you work on deep trauma like this, have you seen people that aren't there anymore? Their body is, but they aren't. You know, the military, we used to call it the thousand yard stare. Let, let, me, let me quickly say, here's a way to bring somebody back. Paul, I'm gonna play with you for a minute. So you've been my client, you got into trauma. I see our time is up in my 50 minute hour. I can't let you go out until your mind starts functioning again. <clears throat> The therapeutic term is I have to ground you in the moment. So a lot of what we do in grounding is simply say, I know this is going to be weird. And we can pick this up later. But for right now, I think you've done such incredible work here. I'm going to ask you to do some weird things with me. Can you follow me? Okay. Am I wearing any jewelry? Can you describe it for me? Yeah. Uh-huh. What color is my is my necklace? Green. Okay. So he's right here with me now. All right. You're describing whatever it is. Now I'm going to presume we have a window out here. Okay. Because I got to make sure you're safe to be able to leave. Can you look out that window and tell me what season it is? Summer. Huh. How do you know it's summer? Uh, uh, grass and trees are green. Yeah. Sun's out. Yeah. Like it's going to be really miserable, huh? Yes. <laughs> and my hair is curling when it shouldn't. Yes. Or you live in Colorado and it snowed yesterday, and maybe it's not summer anymore. Yeah. Okay. Can you look at reality? Okay. All right. You can look at reality. You can talk to me about it. The mind is now coming into the present instead of where it was stuck in the past. Now, my next thing to be able that you're safe to go is tell me what you're going to do when you leave me. What's the first thing you need to do? when you leave my office today? Oh, good. So you're going to go ahead and call Megan. Yeah. Give her my love. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um, are you feeling like you can drive okay? Or do I need to make sure that you can get home without having to drive? Uh, no. Okay. How do you know that? Tell me how you know that. Um, it's not that far, and I feel healthy enough, but okay. um, yeah, I'm not going to shake your blood Good. So the other thing I would say to you, it's going to be really easy when you leave here to put yourself on autopilot. You're going to need to focus more. So look ahead and watch out for stop signs and traffic signals and all that kind of stuff, okay? Because it's going to be really normal for that to happen. And when you get home, some of the stuff we talked about, it's going to be normal for it to hurt you again. You need to remember to tell yourself what we talked about in here. That's past. I'm in my present. You're safe with Megan. You're safe with me. Does that make sense? Okay. So see you next week. All right. That's part of what you do to ground somebody that's gotten into that piece. Um, and you don't want to start peeling the onion unless you have time to get there. So oftentimes you'll stop it, like we just did with Paul, and say, and we'll pick this up later. But we need to make sure somebody is safe. If they aren't, I'm really good at pulling a brain back. There have been times I couldn't, and I put them in the car and we go to the ER and say, kind of need a, saw, a, saw, a psych consult on this one. We still have that 72-hour hold, don't we? Even in the military, I'd bring somebody and say, don't we put people on administrative leave for a while, i.e. pull their weapons card? There's ways to protect somebody from themselves if you can't bring it back. Okay. Um, 
the last thing on the reparation and forgiveness is many people can find forgiveness of themselves if they now work for a good for somebody else. Oftentimes it's what hurt me. I'm not going to let anybody else be hurt like this. So what can you do? What can you give? What volunteer work can you do? What voice do you wish you had had that you want to give a voice to somebody else? The Me Too issues that we've just gone through in our country. You know, how many women have been assaulted in, in Hollywood? How many people have been assaulted in the Catholic Church? Or now the Southern Baptist Church? Can we give voice to this? Can we help them give voice to it? So when we think about moving past that, I think one of the things, if you wouldn't mind speaking to, I, I like that idea of taking what you've dealt with and maybe trying to help other people with it. But one of the um, one of the negative features that I've seen of that 